Hey, everybody, this is Jeff Schulman, and I want to thank you for being a part of the Product Management Center community. Together, we are building a more inclusive future. I'll be back to this podcast in just a few short weeks, and in the meantime, our associate director, Kara, is taking over hosting duties, making sure that all of you still have access to some of the best and brightest minds in product management. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of How to Succeed in Product Management. My name is Kara Fictorn, and I'm back again hosting you as our guest host this week. I am the Associate Director at the Product Management Center at the University of Washington. Over here at the Product Management Center, we're on a mission to empower diverse product leaders to drive success developing innovations that are inclusive to diverse audiences. With that being said, I have some amazing guests with me today. My guest speakers are Sky and Jian, and they are going to be talking with you about user research and what it looks like from small to large organizations. We're super excited to have them. I've worked with both of them over the past year and a half between our summit and our Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, and they're certainly going to share some insights with you. And then later on in the show, we have uh, Steve joining us, who is going to lead our Q&A. I know for our regular listeners, you are used to Red, but Red is out today, and Steve is going to be stepping in to help facilitate that question and answer portion of our show, which takes place about halfway through the hour. All right, with that being said, let's get it started. Sky, could you introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, thanks for having me, Kara. I'm really excited to be joining the podcast today. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Sky Backus. I'm a director of product management at Smartsheet, where I focus on creating content experiences as well as content AI. And I've focused most of my career on building tools for marketers, so Smartsheet's a great fit. And in my free time, I'm also on the board of directors for the Colorado Product Foundation. All right. Thank you. Jian, do you want to come in and uh, introduce yourself for everybody? Yeah. Hi, Kara uh, and everyone. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I'm Jang, and I am a senior product manager at Webflow, where I focus on Webflow's core designer products. So Webflow is a software that allows anyone to create for the web. It's a really exciting space in the no-code tech space. And before this, uh, I was actually a UX researcher and a product manager at Airbnb and have kind of been on both sides where I was a researcher and then now a PM and excited for this topic today. Last thing I'll say is I'm also the instructor for the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator. So um, this fall, we'll be teaching our new cohort. Super excited about that. All right, awesome. So let's dive in with just a, you know, really quick setting the stage for today's conversation. Could you describe for us, Sky, just user research, how we're going to be discussing that? Yeah. So user research, I think in the context of software product management, um, really refers to understanding who your customers are, what their needs are, what are their behaviors? Like, how do they use your product and how do they navigate the experiences you create? 
and why they do those things. And then trying to really gather that insight and use it to make better decisions as a product manager. All right. Awesome. So um, let's dive into how does it show up differently in different organizations? So maybe you could give us some anecdotes and insights, Guy, from your experience of sort of, you know, how does it play out in the product management space? Yeah. So I, I think it can really differ in different size of organizations. And it sounds like, um, Jen, you've had a very similar experience. You know, products, product managers at startups or smaller organizations might find themselves wearing many hats, including that of the user researcher, when they're trying to understand what it is they should focus on solving for their customers. So if you're a product manager at a smaller company, you may have limited resources when it comes to user research, and you might have to wear that hat a lot of the times. And so things like surveys or um, quick user interviews might be your go-tos in that environment. In larger organizations, you might have an entire dedicated team for user research, which opens a ton of other possibilities. And it sounds like, Jen, you've also had some experience working as a user researcher in that type of environment. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about your perspective there. I am actually currently at a smaller company now. We have roughly 600 or so employees. And one of the draws to coming to Webflow was the fact that as a PM, I actually would be doing a lot of research as well. So I thought that was a great way to leverage uh, my previous background. When you're at a larger company, my experience at Airbnb was we had, I think at one point, over 100 UX researchers. So UX researchers really ran the gamut around what type of work they were taking on. And when they're at, when it's a larger company, they tend to specialize. So they might actually become domain experts and your go-to partner as a product manager. For example, a UX researcher focused on hosting, which is have a ton of historical knowledge about what makes Airbnb hosts successful and they could be um, your one of your first stakeholders that you meet with to really understand all of the data, all of the pain points about users, et cetera, and like accelerate your understanding as a PM about your product area and your target audiences in a really, really condensed way. And that's what I suggest um, leveraging your UX researchers for if you're joining any org that has UX researchers as they are tremendous sounds of knowledge to just like really round out your knowledge of the users, really round out your, and help guide your product sense so that you're grounded in actual user problems. At Airbnb, um, one of the best things actually is that like you oftentimes had a dedicated UX researcher, which meant that this person was in all of your meetings, they knew what you were building, they uh, understood your roadmap and your strategy, and therefore they could insert themselves and propose and be really proactive about when research should play a role in like, like, you know, ahead of annual planning, they might already have ideas of like research that you could run that would give you strategic insights to inform annual planning or ahead of like a feature release. They might be like, okay, we, we should bake in a little bit of time before this feature release to do some last minute usability testing, et cetera. So I think when you have dedicated researchers at a bigger org, they tend to bring all of those proposals to you, drive how research can make an impact, which is really nice. Um, takes the load off of you as a PM to think about, oh, when should I, you know, think about inserting research? Like they will do that for you. I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but that's kind of my main sense of like one big difference when you're at a smaller place versus a, a larger org. You're a little bit more spoiled, I would say, <laughs> when you're at a, a larger org. 
Great. Thanks so much. So have either of you been in, a, in an organization where there wasn't a dedicated user researcher or team? And how did you handle that? Absolutely. I mean, I, I starting at a smaller company, was kind of that product manager on a very, very small lean team that had to understand what problems were the most important and try to figure out how to get that clarity of the all the dimensions of the problem on my own. And so when you're in that environment, I think you have to figure out how to manage your time um, so effectively because you're wearing all of these different hats as a product person, which is a really rewarding situation. Like I love being you kind of that full stack product manager where you get to do the surveys, you get to do the data analysis, you get to do the user interviews. It's really fun. But as Jen mentioned, it's really nice to also be spoiled sometimes. And I think when you're in that situation of working in a smaller organization, you have to you have to operate in a lean environment. And so you have to figure out how can you get 80% of the research value for 20% of the effort. And all of your plans should be in that spirit. So depending on the time and space you have, your research and the depth of research that you do might look really different. You might only have time for a survey. You might lean into talking to your customer experience team to find some customers who are just itching to talk to someone in product. And you might not have the time and space to do more discovery up front, but if you do, you might prioritize that. Yeah, plus one, everything Sky said, and maybe you'd like to be really tactical. Um, Two things that I have found really helps when you are running lean and trying to maximize your time, but still, you know, have ample time to be meeting with customers and doing that discovery. One is to leverage basically like inner circles of customers. If you can cultivate uh, an inner circle of customers that sort of sign up to be your alpha group or your feedback group, um, that could be a great way for you to repeatedly go back to customers and just pull them in when you need opinions. They could be offering like, you know, quick design reviews or like, you know, giving feedback on like, what's the desirability of this feature? How do you expect this feature would work, et cetera. The second tactic that you could consider is doing rapid iterative testing or sorry, testing, but like rapid iterative, like recurring discovery calls. So one of the things that I did at Webflow was I basically, when I joined, like set up um, weekly or bi-weekly calls and, and just had my had a team help me recruit a bunch of users so that I had like a spreadsheet of people. And then every week or so, I would talk to one or two of them. Um, and you, for those types of things, like you don't necessarily need to have a research plan or like specific questions. You can just be casually thinking about your roadmap or what you're ho- hoping to plan and then just have like these get to know you discuss open more open-ended discovery calls with your customers but then they might lead in interesting ways to inform the things that you're working on or the things that you're planning to build for but both of those like just lower the logistical overhead that research sometimes can take because then you know if it's recurring it's always on your calendar you know you're always going to have a chance to talk to a customer this week and it will you know naturally over time, you can kind of accumulate like a tiny habit. It it will accumulate uh, the impact of informing your roadmap and your strategy. Thank you, Jen. I'm going down that same path. So once you've done all that user research, whether you've did it yourself, or like you said, if you're a little more at a larger organization and kind of spoiled by a team behind you, what do you then do to utilize it? What's the best way as a PM to really take advantage in in a tactical sense of the research that's uncovered? 
Yeah. So I think this research is really all about understanding your customers and problems. And when you have that clarity of insight, you can just make better decisions as a product manager. And research can have a pretty wide ranging um, set of goals. It could be generative in nature. You might be looking to have uh, research that's actually looking for problem spaces that you never really thought to solve before. You may also have research that's very focused and targeted towards specific areas that you want to invest in. And I think that gathering this research and using it to help you understand, like, where should I invest? Where should we be spending our time as an organization um, is really valuable. And so that data can be used to help make prioritization decisions. It can help you understand how to build experiences that customers will actually love to use. It could be used to better understand whether or not you should solve the entirety of a problem or just the most painful dimension of it. So there's a, there's a lot of ways that you can use that information. And I'm sure Jen has some other ideas too. Uh, yeah, so many, so many things. Sometimes it's not like the lack of insights that you have. It's more the limited bandwidth sometimes you have, you have as a PM to implement everything. So plus on what Sky said, I would say like, one of the things that I always stop and think about is like, what is the goal of this research? Is it on the spectrum that is like very tactical and evaluative? And what I'm really trying to get answers to is I already have a design. I want to know if this works and I want to know if there's any like fine tuning of the UI or like maybe additional uh, tasks that the, the user expects to do that I haven't accounted for in my P0s, in my initial uh, release, et cetera, all the way to like generative open-ended where I'm just looking for like, what are the problems have we not solved yet um, that users actually expect us to solve? We'd be really delighted if we solved. And for those types of research, the insights is more about like seeding ideas seeding empathy, and then eventually some of it will basically ground, end up becoming part of like a vision story or part of the strategy story, et cetera, and like drive a, a larger pivot in maybe what you go after as a team, what you think of as like success for your product. But I think there's a gamut of other things, like sometimes research helps you in your stakeholder influence, bringing evidence to the table that, you know, you're not just listening to internal stakeholders, you're really grounding yourself in what the market wants or what your customers want. Sometimes research helps me refine success metrics because let's say research teaches me that, hey, I'm looking at these quantitative metrics, but my interviews reveal to me that there's qualitative aspects of like how people feel this feature is performing. So I may need to like retweak how I think about success metrics. Gosh, I'm trying to think what else. Sometimes, oh, one thing that I, I really love actually for research, I, I definitely need to mention is prioritization. As a PM, <laughs> it's never a problem of like, oh, there's so many problems we can tackle. Oftentimes it's a problem of constraints and resources. And what research can help you do is identify what can be like, what's the absolute P zeros that customers expect to be a minimum lovable product versus things you hear from research like that's nice but you know like I'm okay I could live without that so those types of feedback can give you signal of like I can actually maybe change the scope of what I'm doing to make it a smaller release or maybe I need to expand the scope because if I don't account for certain things that the customers will actually not really this like release won't have the impact that I want so I think research I oftentimes lean on to 
define prioritization in some ways of like, these are such important pain points, we have to tackle them versus I didn't hear a lot of feedback from research. So maybe these are things that I can defer for later on in my roadmap. Yeah, g- great. I was wondering, Sky, if you wanted to kind of weigh in on that of like, when there's so many things that you could do, but you have to really scope the work. Yeah, I, this is the constant struggle of a product manager, right? This is why we have this entire career opportunity ahead of us is because there are so many things we can do day in and day out, but what is the right thing to focus on? And I think that user research, one of the things I love about it is that it gives us those that concrete evidence that Jen spoke to, that one problem is actually more impactful to our customers than the other. And I use user research a ton in my work. And so one of the things we recently discovered was that some of the biggest problems we thought were important problems were actually less important than some things that we kind of took for granted in our product. Just simple behaviors, simple interactions. And whenever we talk to our customers to understand their pain points, they brought up these micro interactions that were actually the most detrimental to their experience. And so we really shifted a lot of how we thought about bringing content experiences into Smartsheet to address some of these more basic needs. And that's been uh, one way that we've seen research really impact, you know, how we think about solving problems that matter to our customers. And I also think that research, you know, if if you're looking more at a, a tactical level, it can also help inform like how you might go about designing a specific experience because you might discover in something like a survey, for example, that some customers don't really care about certain pieces of information as much as others. And so it might really influence how you think about information architecture in an experience. And so there's other ways that you can kind of not only incorporate user research into your overall strategy, but also in your like actual implementation of a new capability or new experience inside of your product. Great. Thank you, Sky. So I was wondering if you both could kind of weigh in a little bit on, um, you know, when do you know if you have the research that you are expecting and when do you need to go back and seek more inputs? Like, when is it that you start to push back and be like, this isn't exactly what we were hoping for? Kind of how does that workflow happen for you? Yeah. So how do you know you've really collected the right information? So in a previous life, I was a big science nerd. Um, I had a career as a chemical engineer and the scientific method was my end-all be-all. And I really think that scientific research and user research have so much in common because it all starts with what is your hypothesis and what are you trying to learn? And how will you know that you've actually learned what you have set out to learn? You have to like set these benchmarks kind of up front so that you can draw some bounds, some success metrics for understanding whether or not your research was done to the degree you wanted it to be done. Um, So that hypothesis, um, what are you hoping to learn? How will you know that you've actually learned the thing you set out to learn? Having that defined can really help you understand whether or not you need to invest more time in your user research, whether or not you've gathered the right information from the right 
sources. You may decide that you need more quantitative or qualitative information to help you make a decision. And so I think it really comes back to how you define your plan up front and making sure you have a clear picture of what success looks like. I would also say that part of it depends on the, so many factors, but part of it depends on the the size of the organization that you're at, the speed at which you are trying to develop that product and the stage of the product. So if you're at a larger organization with a more mature product, with a huge amount of reach, like let's say you're at Google uh, or Airbnb building for millions of people, you may need to take your time a little bit more and bake it a little bit more with research and with design, et cetera. Because when you're ready to launch, that release is going to impact so much and drive uh, a huge uh, response from customers, especially with like a mature product. Like imagine if someone just willy-nilly changed Gmail on you and you're like, wait, how do I navigate Gmail now? So there's moments when you need to slow down due to the size of the user base and due to the maturity of the product and the adoption and reliance from customers, especially if it's like um, business critical, if it has to do with like security, privacy, all those types of nuances. There's also moments when you sometimes need to be a little bit more agile when you like when you have to make a call of like this is enough and we need to move on. I've experienced this a little bit more at startup worlds because we maybe have a tighter timeline um, and a lot that we're trying to tackle and build in a short amount of time. So then you have to again, what Sky said before, do like the 80-20 assessment in your mind where you're like, you know what? I've talked to six users this week. I know I can talk to more, but the clock is kind of running out on making decisions that will unblock my design team and my engineering team to make this project a success. And maybe we can work with this as like working hypothesis informed by research um, that is not 100%, like we haven't saturated, in, in user research, sometimes we say like, it's data saturation. Have you met enough saturated like data to say like, oh, all of those signs are pointing to the same thing? Like maybe you hit, you don't hit that saturation point quite yet with the evidence that you've gathered, but you feel strong enough about that initial direction that you can just move on. And then you need to build in some levers to be able to gut check yourself. Like, are you able to measure the metrics after that release to be like, did I hit it on the right mark with my research? Or is now my post-launch analysis showing me that there's actually a lot of other things that we need to unpack? Like, what's the cost? It sometimes is something that you have to think about as a PM. What's the cost if I shortcut a little bit of the research time because I have all these other constraints, like trying to meet a timeline or et cetera, et cetera. If the cost is relatively minimal, or sometimes what I like to think of is like, is this a one-way door decision or a two-way door decision? There's a lot of literature out there about one-way door versus two-way door decisions. But the gist of it is if it's a two-way door decision, it's going to be easy to reverse something. And if it is a two-way door type of feature or decision that we're making, um, I am a little bit more uh, leaning into like get enough research, but then move on because there will be an easy way for you to change that UI down the road if the overwhelming feedback that you get later is that this wasn't the best UX experience, et cetera. But if it's a one-way or decision and it's going to be very costly to reverse that, then you probably want to take a little bit more time, get that uh, additional signal or confidence before you move forward. And Sky, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I I love that framing of the one-way door, two-way door. I think other ways that people think about it is, you know, what is the the threshold of risk 
for this decision, you have to figure out how to mitigate that risk. Make sure that you're gathering the right information to make the best decision that you can. And so one of the things that you know my team does a lot is we kind of have these assessments of which which decisions are risky and what do we need to get more feedback on from our users. And we have decision trackers and we create decision documents for the most risky decisions that we back up with evidence from our customers, from the data that helps support why we chose, you know, making a specific decision. And that's a really, I think, healthy way to approach it at times. And I I am currently working in a larger organization. So I am making sure that we're investing a lot into making those right decisions with as much user research as possible for those big one-way door items. All right. Thank you both. So we're going to take a a moment now, and I'm going to have uh, Steve introduce himself and give our audience some instructions for our upcoming Q&A, where our audience gets to interact with our guests. All right. Thanks, Kara. And uh, thanks to the guests and great information being shared today. Uh, So my name is Steve Babinas. I'm um, kind of a guest Q&A director for Filling in for Red this week. And um, I am a uh, talent acquisition director at Blue Origin here in Kent, Washington. So I've been working in uh, human resources and talent acquisition most of my career. Previously was at Meta and Boeing and Amazon here in the Seattle area. So for our Q&A session, um, there's a couple options we have. One is that if you'd like to ask your question live and in person, um, you can go ahead and raise your hand and then we'll invite you onto the stage. You can introduce yourself and ask your question of our guests. Or if you'd prefer to be anonymous and just ask a question on the side, feel free to hover over my little circle and there's three dots and you can go ahead and click on the messaging feature and that will send your question over to me and then I can ask it on your behalf um, and you can stay anonymous. So we will give everybody a minute to kind of organize their thoughts and either raise your hand or send me a message. But to get things started, a question we have for our panelists today is that if you have any perspective on how artificial intelligence and machine learning tools being integrated into user research and how information is collected, do you think this could be a good thing, a bad thing, or have you seen it being used so far in research that that you've accessed? Absolutely. I think AI has an incredible opportunity to help synthesize user feedback, user sentiment, from a lot of different sources into a cohesive location that could be leveraged by user researchers, product managers, designers, really anyone who wants to get that insight from in that voice of customer. We've actually implemented a tool at Smartsheet that helps us do that. And it aggregates feedback from community forums, from product enhancement request forms, from a lot of different resources, and then tries to tease out what are these common themes that our customers are saying. And it's been a huge time save because a lot of that understanding sentiment, determining what are the themes, that was done manually by product managers before, and that's a huge amount of overhead. And so it's been a a huge time save for, for teams at Smartsheet. 
Yeah, and since I touched on like the positive side, I'll play devil's advocate um, and share like one potential pitfall is like I have been following different AI newsletters and I remember, I uh, can't remember the exact company, but it was essentially uh, like a promotion or an article describing AI generated user personas that you could run research with. So imagine instead of finding actual humans to do user interviews, you'd basically use like an AI chatbot to ask them questions and try to get some sentiment or feedback from like an AI user that would represent, be quote unquote representative of like the type of user that you might have to recruit a real human for. I think that struck me as a little bit of an overextension of an AI um, capability that I'm not sure I have a ton of stock or uh, in because I, I, I do think that one of the richness of doing user research is that you're talking to people and people are um, unexpectedly, they have an unexpected range of emotions and beliefs and things that you might not be able to, that might surprise you about their reactions to your product or the needs that they have. That AI, I have a little bit of skepticism if it would replace actual humans. So the TLDR is if you are, you know, encountering as a PM, maybe years from now, uh, the, you know, opportunity to be like, hey, instead of talking to humans research, talk to this AI bot, like proceed with caution, I would say. That's not something that I um, have elected to do, but I'm sure it's one of those things that will continue to evolve as AI gains even more steam in different US applications. So you're saying we, we still need humans? We still need humans, yes. At least I, that's my belief. That's my stance. I, I can be challenged on that realm. I know AI seems yeah. to be over the world. I will second that we still need humans. <laughs> I also believe in humans. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's an interesting perspective, a, a simulated user through a chatbot versus an actual user and the, and the variabilities that come with, with real people and emotional reactions to things. So yeah. That's, that's a great point. Yeah, it's a natural extension. Like right now, people are having a lot of fun talking to like simulated Elon Musk or even simulated pastors, et cetera. But I feel like not maybe quite yet would I replace it with, for humans. That's good. There's a future for all of us then. <laughs> Great. Well, um, again, if anybody has questions, please feel free to raise your hands, add you to the stage, or if you want to send questions in a message, please feel free to do so. Okay. Thank you for having me up. Just wanted to know, so for example, some a factor like customers coming back to your webpage or your product or your service, just wanted to know what are what would be the key factors to look at to ensure that you have a business that lasts and doesn't just fizzle away. So what are kind of the factors to be watching out for to make sure the tide doesn't turn on you sometime in the future? So I think the question I heard was, how do you make sure that your users are engaged and that they return to your product? And I think that really boils down to, are you delivering differentiated value? If you are, and the value that your product, your website um, is providing to these users can't be recreated easily in other ways, then you've created a mechanism to return. So there's that, that aspect of it. And then when you're providing that value, are you doing it in a way that delights? I think delight goes a long way when it comes to building successful products. 
And so I, those are those are two things that I really think of. And there's lots of ways that you can maybe analyze this and measure it and figure out, well, okay, how do I how do I build this flywheel to make sure that customers are always returning? There's lots of ways you can do that. But I do think that at the core of the problem, it's all about differentiated value and how you deliver that delightfully. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then I would say, the types of metrics that you're looking for and user behavior that you're looking for is entirely different depending on what product you're building and the business model of the business. So if you're building a consumer product that is subscription-based, you're probably going to be looking for engagement as far as like repeat subscription, et cetera, as a signal that they have found delight and differentiate value to keep coming back. If you are building like a B2B product, you, you're probably going to be looking at like repeat contracts and like the total amount of revenue that you're gaining with each contract revenue. Is your contract revenue increasing? What is your net revenue look like year after year? Um, so it, it really runs the gamut, like the, the selection of how you measure engagement and what is like meaningful engagement that is monetized into business value is different. Because I think the second part of your question, uh, Siobhan Carr, was like, you want to measure engagement so that your business continues to grow. So it really needs to be like grounded in how does your business model work? Because if your business model is about subscription, it doesn't really matter if you have a ton of engagement of people clicking if those people aren't converting those clicks into subscription, right? Or if your business model is you know, dependent on upsells, it doesn't really matter if you have a lot of like free users um, who love your product. They're not, you know, being converted into like business users or like higher tiers, then you might not have the monetization flywheel or levers to have like a sustainable business. So that's just something to think about. And I think one cut is like consumer versus B2B. That's one of the first things to think about. I love that point, Jen. And you know, if you're building B2B tools, there are some B2B tools where the jobs that people need to do don't need to be done a lot. And if they do need to be done a lot, then you have a bigger problem. And so sometimes like even repeat engagement could not be the right measure because those people should only be going to your product one time a month or something like that. And I think that is a, a really great call out that it really comes down to, well, what are what is the metric of success? Because sometimes efficiency is the game you're playing and maybe doing the thing a lot isn't actually a good way to measure whether or not you're efficient. Yep, totally. Yeah, actually, your comment made me think of another another point to this, which is like success from who is also a question. Like one thing that you will see, especially as the economy changes, is sometimes businesses change who their target users are. So like I've seen, for example, in the space of fintech, people, you know, getting out of like, like neo banks getting out of the small medium businesses because the money is like there's more money to be made in larger businesses or enterprise so sometimes you see really healthy engagement from one user segment but then you decide as a company hey that user segment does have as much monetizable value for us as a business and what we need to do is go upstream and tackle more of the larger customers like enterprise etc so then you sort of like lean into like hey for this year or whatever, I want to see higher engagement from these specific users. And it's okay if these other users sort of organically stop uh, being as engaged with our product because it's not meant for them. Great. Thank you for the question. And I guess when in doubt, be delightful is a, a good message for <laughs> all product development. 
Great. We have a, another question. Um, actually, it looks like we have um, Angela Parker, if you want to go ahead and unmute and share your question. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, this is a great uh, learning experience. My question, I guess, ties along into, you know, how can you delight users? But from, a, from your own standpoint, what are some cool new software tools in your bucket that are delighting you outside of the, the usual, you know, Trello, Jira, Figma, et cetera? Okay, yeah, we have the same answer, which is that, um, you know, AI for sure is revolutionizing a lot of industries, including the PM career and job. So I've been definitely loving exploring GPT for a variety of use cases, sometimes just to like get, you know, background on industries, background on competitors, sometimes you noodle on like, okay, I'm thinking about this feature, like what other things get this feature extended to, et cetera. Um, the sky's really the limit in the types of prompts you can get some value from. Um, it hasn't gotten to the point where it's like writing all of my documents, but it's definitely been like a, a helpful assistance that has been helping me save time and like broaden my view of the things that are possible. Over to you, Sky. Oh, yes. I love that we had the same exact answer, which probably shows how revolutionary ChatGPT has been for a lot of people in their day-to-day work. I use it as a thought partner, someone to bounce ideas off of, someone to kind of understand the dimensions of problem spaces and dig into them more, also to do like general market research and to also understand based on all the information on the internet that exists, how are people thinking about my product? Because there's a lot of feedback that people have said in different um, forums throughout the internet. And ChatGPT knows a lot about Smartsheet. So I ask it questions about Smartsheet, which is pretty entertaining at times. That's great. Thank you, Angela, for the question. Uh, We did have a question come in on the side. um, And I think this is... uh, a point that was brought up a little bit earlier, just around kind of when you need to use judgment in lieu of data or to sort of supersede the data that you've collected potentially. And I think this is probably where the role of a product manager is uh, amplified when you have to sort of say, you know, we're, we're going to make a decision or move forward based on partial data or some data that we've gotten in. So we're interested to hear a little bit more if you guys have any other stories to share on when you've sort of been in a situation where you've had to use your judgment to kind of move past uh, what the data is telling you or if you didn't have data available. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I know there's a currently a new capability on my team that's in the works that really deals with overhauling an experience that existed before. And we tried gathering data about how customers work with this particular area of the product today. We tried implementing a heat map to understand how they navigate. We tried doing a survey to understand, you know, what information is most important. We did customer interviews to understand how people are working with it today. And a lot of people were doing things totally different from each other. And the results haven't been as conclusive, especially the heat map results, as we thought they would be. And so now we have to make information architecture decisions based on what we think the right experience is, based on information that we gathered across all these different um, sources that isn't really point like pointing in one direction that is in saying, go there, that's the right way to go. And so that's where like having good product sense and being able to 
make the best decision you can with the information that you have is part of the job as a product manager. And sometimes you wish the data was a little bit more clear and you wish that the feedback was pointing you in a direction that just like was, you know, paved in gold and says, this is the right decision. But that's not always the case as product people. And so sometimes you just have to document why you made the decisions you made and know that you're making the best decision you can with the information that you have at the time. Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this too. I guess like one is not all organizations have the same level of being data-driven. So as a PM, when you join a company, you need to seek out and understand how do people actually use data here and are people motivated by customer stories and anecdotes and feedback? Or are they motivated by quantitative metrics for adoption, engagement, et cetera? Or do people um, generally you know, not inform themselves uh, by data and why is that the case? So you, you want to like get a sense for how data-driven that product or culture is first to see how you fit in. Because sometimes you might think like, as long as I bring enough data, people will listen and agree. That might not be the case. Some of the stakeholders are more motivated by like, storytelling, etc. So that's one. The second thing is there are specific scenarios where um, data is sort of like more squishy and you sort of can use it as a tool, but in more maybe not be the only tool. One of the places is sort of one products. There's a lot of examples of products that exist today that there was no data pointing to that that product should exist, right? Back in the day, like people would have been like, you're insane. I'm not going to go live at a stranger's house or the next door to me. But now everyone's super comfortable with staying at strangers' houses at Airbnb. So there's a part of like visionary product work where you just imagine things that customers themselves would not give you data or any signal on, or maybe even tell you like, I don't want that. But once you invent it, they love it. So that's one zero to one product things that are just like breaking the mode, um, setting the first sort of market leader position that that's when you might need to like completely throw out the data, ignore customers because um, they don't know what they don't know that they could have, or they don't know that they could be delighted by something. Another area where data could be a little bit more squishy, I think, is when you are working with data, but like there's qualitative data and like quantitative data. So you need to like figure out exactly what the mix of data should be. Um, and that is something that you kind of learn over time, which products you, you might want to lean into the qualitative a little bit more versus which products are really informed by like quantitative. Uber strikes me, for example, as a company that's like, very, very quantitative data-led. Um, in fact, there was a big splash, I uh, can't remember how many years ago, where they did not have as big of a research team anymore because they were like, we were all about experimentation, all about A-B tests, and we will be guided by what the A-B test results are and what our data will tell us about how much users are uh, enjoying you know, these particular features. So yeah, there's just a, a lot of different <laughs> situations around data. No, that's great perspective. and. You know, what fun in an organization that maybe isn't as data driven to just say, let's throw out the data and see what we know based on our own experiences, uh, which I think, you know, can be can be an exciting thing as well. So I think that's that's great to hear that there there's opportunities probably for both. Great. Well, we have another question that came in. So if a team of 10 people working on a telco product, how can we effectively obtain the UX research rather than spending money on lots of research and complete the product still in a short term? Um, what are some of the specifics that may be taken into more consideration? I'm curious, is it B2B or I, I'm assuming it's B2B if it's a telecommunications product or is it B2C? Uh, the person who asked the question wants to um, 
B to C. Okay, then definitely talking to end users as much as you can, because B to C, and I think Jen touched on this earlier, you know, it's really about that engagement and making sure that you're building the things that are going to solve their problems and the experiences that are going to keep them coming back for more. And so being able to reach out to those customers quickly and set up time, even if it's you know a 20 minute session can be really valuable for gaining fast insight. Yeah, I also recommend, and I've worked with like startups before, like we're talking really, really early, like even pre-see, they haven't raised any funding type of startups. They were just trying to get an understanding of what their customers' needs were. So they just had like no idea what they could build. And at that point, my advice was um, to really like sit down and document all of the questions that you have about your customer, their problems, and come up with some hypotheses of like, which are the problems or questions that you think will move the needle the most and prioritize because you don't have enough time to meet with customers to talk to them about everything. But you need to have a perspective on like, hey, if I have these three core questions around onboarding answered and uh, I have this question around uh, you know, retention answer. And I have this question around like this specific power feature answer. I think that will move the needle for how much our customers will adopt our product. Then go with that and don't worry about, you know, the laundry list of other questions. You can ask them about X, Y, Z, other features that you could be building or any other ideas. Ultimately, like if you have constraints and resources, it just comes down to a prioritization of like, yeah. And then the, the second thing I would say is like, I oftentimes will lean on my UX designer partner as well, because they are trained to bring a lot of strong UX design sense, product sense, and build delightful products. So if they are great, they're senior, I am comfortable letting them make calls on the UI, even if that means like not letting, not having users look at, um, you know, the prototypes or testing it as much because I'm almost like, okay, they've been designing <laughs> like, you know, B2B dashboards for years. Like, I think they know what they're talking about. I don't think I need a user to click on this dashboard to figure out how to navigate the data. I think with their background, you know, kind of short change and not have to do as much usability studies. So something like that would be uh, another way to save time. Great. Thanks for those perspectives. And of course, with economic ups and downs, right? We know um, businesses sometimes will invest more in research and sometimes less. And so you have to be able to pivot with all that. So good things to think through. Great. Uh, well, we have another question that came through. I think this is a pretty interesting one, probably sort of a combination between product management and thinking about user research is that how do you ensure that the research that you're collecting and the products you're designing are inclusive to the most amount of people who could potentially use the product? And, and are those things that you think about when you lean into user research specifically? Absolutely. And I, I think that inclusivity is something that isn't always a, a thing that you research, but instead a expectation that you set of any product that you build. And so I think that inclusivity is often baked in in the requirements is kind of how we think about it. And so things like having a clear set of accessibility standards for anything that we build, making sure that we have a clear understanding of, you know, how will this 
work with translation services so that we can service our products to anyone around the world and have that global audience. I like to approach it more from the um, requirements side. Inclusivity is a requirement and less on the the research side, but that's also the the nature of my products are very focused on tools that help help people do work. And so inclusivity is a requirement for helping people do work in their jobs. Yeah. And what I would add to that is if you're looking to build inclusive products, there's like different layers of control and influence that you need to think through. At the most tactical layer, it's are you selecting users that are diverse and represent a broad gamut of people and not just selecting users that are easy to recruit? Sometimes, you know, it might be a little bit harder to recruit certain types of users, but it's worthwhile because they're bringing unique voices to your product that you want to hear from. So you can control that as a gem. You can work with your researcher and make sure that, hey, are we being inclusive in our recruitment processes? You can write PRDs that have, you know, requirements like Sky was saying that in requirements for translation or accessibility, et cetera. So that's all like kind of more within your control. But then the thing I'll invite people to think about is what are things that are more at the company level that you can try to get involved in or influence? Like if you seek out, there's an accessibility or inclusive product working group. If there isn't, can you help advocate that there needs to be some forum for the company to think about accessible design principles or you know, inclusive principles, etc. How would you find sponsors who care about that topic so that it's not, it doesn't become something that is sort of, uh, you know, in the back burner and people don't really think about? Oftentimes with accessibility and inclusive products, my experience is like, you sort of have to find the allies within the org if you care about this product and just huddle up and team up with them to try to drive this like parallel agenda. So you have the agenda of build products, but you have a parallel agenda of making sure they're inclusive products. And sometimes that Parallel agenda requires additional efforts. Um, it's like outside of your day to day while you're building the product. Great, thanks for that perspective. Yeah, I think finding finding the allies is is always important, right? Making sure that you have buy-in right away. And I love Sky your your points on the the requirements, right? The inclusivity should start with the design and and understanding what the requirements are, not not be just add in at the end. <laughs> Great. Well, if there's anyone else who has any questions, I think that was all that we had in queue so far. Um, if anybody wants to raise their hand, great. Can we add Angela to the stage? What about employees in the innovation project? How do you include those if you do, you know, voting or submitting or, or working on on this, um, projects as well? I think employee inclusivity is a great topic because that's really how do you un, how do you make people feel passionate about the things that they're working on and really bought into where we're taking this product. I think some good ways to do that are having workshops or sessions to kind of think through ideas and like gather ideas, teams. I think that can be a really fun way for teams to work together on topics and to dig deep and to come up with some ideas that we may not have been able to come up with by ourselves. So like kind of crowdsourcing and riffing off of each other and it's a really energetic environment. And so I think workshops and things like that are really great ways to facilitate that type of team inclusivity. Jen, what are what are your thoughts on that? Also thinking of workshops, so that's great. And then sometimes it's like very explicitly like a roadmap roadshow where as a PM you might host a review of your roadmap and invite key employees that have opinions to come and just like understand why you've chosen to prioritize some features on your roadmap. I'm trying to think 
sometimes like at Webflow, what's unique is actually some of our employees are users of our product. So we actually have like an internal employees experts council that we oftentimes will treat as like almost a proxy for talking to external users. And so they very much feel like my users <laughs> that I like will pull into different brainstorming sessions or get UX feedback from. And I would say like one way to include employees is to celebrate with them. Like every company, hopefully that you're a part of has some way to have company town halls or like quarterly reviews where you can invite people to show off and give demos of what they've been working on so that people get excited about all of the great things that folks are shipping. Great. Thank you. And thank you, Angela, our, our uh, double question star for today. Well, I, that concludes our Q&A. Um, Sky and Jen, we, we tried to stump you, but uh, you had answers for everything. So thank you so much for your perspectives. It was great. I will pass it back over to our host, Kara, to wrap things up. Yeah. So uh, in our last few minutes here, I want to ask our guests for their final thoughts. What would you like to leave our audience with in terms of user research from small to large organizations? I think my final thoughts are no matter what size organization you're in, you should do user research. And that might mean wearing more of that researcher hat, or it might mean working really closely with the research team you have available to you. And my parting thought is that um, user research is a really deep and just like rich field with lots and lots of different types of tools in their toolkit and different types of research methods, et cetera. So I always suggest to my PM friends and aspiring PMs, like pick the two or three most used tools, learn about how to leverage those tools in an effective way. And those three that for me that I tend to suggest is learn how to do effective interviews, learn what are the pitfalls of not asking leading questions, like don't <laughs> ask a user, hey, would you buy this feature? You know, things like that. So like there's there's a lot of research, uh, sorry, there's a lot of literature out there of like it's an effective way to conduct an open-ended, non-leading type of user interview, like read some articles about that. Another research method suggests is usability. Understand how to do usability tests, simple usability tests, where you put prototypes in for people, ask for their feedback, and again, non-leading ways, letting them navigate and find the bugs or perceived issues with your feature, instead of pointing things out to them, like, hey, do you like this drop-down here, et cetera? And the third one would be surveys, because surveys are a really good one. As I mentioned, to get a a larger quantitative set of metrics. But if you have those three, some familiarity with the best practices and like what to avoid with those three, I think you're golden. Um, I would not worry too much about a, a ton of the other methods, no matter what stage of product you might be from, because you will lean on your research partners for some of the more complicated methods like diary studies or eye tracking, what have you. All right. Guy, Jin, Steve, thank you so much for joining me today on how to succeed in product management. For our audience listening, join us next week on the 25th of July, where we'll be talking about execution frameworks. Have a great day, everyone, and thanks for being here with us. Bye.